0: The From Day One podcast is brought to you by The Bridge. Visit us at thebridgebk.com. Hi, I'm Nick Bailey, and this is the From Day One podcast. With us today is Danny Aronson, the co-founder and CEO of Even, a company that aims to individualize sound. What does that mean? Well, for starters, Even has created headphones based on the idea that each listener hears sounds in a slightly different way, using a 90-second self-administered hearing test The company tests the volumes and frequencies that you hear in each ear, and then will tune your headphones to match those settings. Even's been a rapid success. Their first batch of earbuds sold out in 48 hours. In addition to founding Even, Aronson is a classically trained composer with a degree in music from Tel Aviv University, plays flute, piano, and guitar, and has written and produced music for theater and ballet. Before he started Even in 2014, Danny spent 20 years as a partner in EverZero's largest post-production sound studio, working on thousands of radio spots, TV ads, feature films, and many more. Danny, thanks for coming in.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So you lived in Tel Aviv for a long time, and uh, you had, a, I guess, a thriving career there. You were working in music, working in production. Um, what made you want to come to Brooklyn and, and start this company?
1: Well, we started even about four years ago uh, with my co-founder, Al and it very quickly escalated. We very quickly understood that we have a you know, really interesting idea. It took us 44 years to come up with a really good idea, but we came up with one. And it started getting really intense in terms of lots of flights, and um, by the by, twenty seventeen. He he was based here as a he was he's in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. but I was in Tel Aviv, and and so you compromised. So we (laughs) compromised. So we actually, my wife's family is from New York, so it was it was very it was very um, you know was easy decision for us. But it just being it just became crazy. I used to fly like every three weeks um and be here for a week and it just became too much and it just made more sense for us to move to new york and it was clear to me that brooklyn is the brooklyn is the place it's the new york of new york it's the new york of new york
0: got it now um so you guys have patented this idea you yeah. want to tell us a little bit about what the idea is
1: mm-hmm. uh, and what the genesis of it was yeah well i've been a uh, as as you said in the intro i've been a commercial sound designer for about 25 years um and one thing that I found in, you know, a headphone is a, is, a, is a tool of work for me and I've tried I think almost everything out there on the market. And one thing that was very um, problematic for me is this assumption that everybody hears exactly the same, which we just know is not true. People hear differently. There are different reasons for it. Some of it is genetic, some of it is noise-induced, you know, it's just people have different sensitivities to frequencies. It's a, nothing about us physically is perfect. Um, Nothing about our vision is perfect, nothing about us is completely symmetrical, and everything about us changes, but if you think about any headphone you've ever tried, the assumption is that you have perfect hearing across all frequency ranges, your hearing is completely symmetrical, and it miraculously never changes, so it's always perfect. Um, and I found that to be to be untrue. and I think it, you know, there's, there's a certain way to make these devices better. And we thought that this was a, a really a really interesting way. And I think the breakthrough for us was when we tried it ourselves. and it just blew my mind. I, I, I haven't you know I, I just pressed the button. For me, it was a, a revelation. I, d- I haven't heard music like that for a long, long time. And I have um, slight hearing loss in high frequencies in my right ear and low frequencies in my low, um, in my left ear. So it's different different frequencies in different ears. So for me, what even does is is magical. It just gives me the the ability to enjoy music in, in you know in the way that I that I that I haven't been able to without it.
0: Gotcha. So. W- just before we started this interview, actually, I got a chance to, to actually check it out. Um, there's a pair of, of these headphones sitting right in front of us. Um, I'll, I'll sort of explain sort of from my perspective as a, as a, as a consumer what, what it's like. Um, you know, you start by pressing a button and then there's a voice in the headphones that walks you through, I guess, like a series of sound tests. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't connect it to a computer or anything. It's, it's all sort of self-contained. Uh, it plays little snippets of sound. Some are, are, are high frequencies, some are lower frequencies uh, in each of your ears. Um, and you just use this one button. And press the button when you hear something and respond to the, the prompts. And then it creates, uh, I guess, like a profile of your hearing. Is that what's going on inside?
1: Yeah, it's a, a, the technical term is an audiogram. So the the system that we use is the standard audiometry, which is a threshold of hearing test. So what, what they do in audiometry is they, to understand how you hear, they slice up your hearing into frequencies. And it goes from very low frequencies up to very high. And traditional audiometry has been very, very focused around helping people with severe hearing loss um, understand speech better. So the focus is on frequencies that are around speech is anywhere between 500 hertz you know, to 4, 6K. Um, the test that they do in standard audio, audiometry is 250 hertz up to 8K, but, but it's really focused on helping people understand speech better, and that's been the focus of audiometry. What we've done is we've taken this threshold of hearing test, and what they want to know is what is the minimum volume you can hear a specific frequency? and what we've done is said okay this is you know it's it's a it's a very it's a great way to understand how a person hears but we're into music so we do way lower so we go all the way down to 125 hertz and all the way up to 14 kilohertz um because we want to compensate for you know the ability to listen to music which is a much wider frequency range and yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a very, um, it's a very simple process. In the end, what we get is what we call an audiogram, or what even calls an earprint, which is a graph that shows your hearing in your left and right ear individually, um, the frequencies that you hear, at what volume do you hear, what is the minimum vo- volume that you can hear a, c- a certain frequency, and then we basically have like a profile of your hearing.
0: Would it be fair analogy to call it something like corrective lenses almost? like is it is it a similar mental model to like a pair of glasses in front of your eyes?
1: Exactly. That's the 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 tagline we've been running with, which helps people understand what we're talking about is glasses for your ears because people understand that they would need some sort of corrective device for 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 eyesight, and they wouldn't think about walking around with somebody else's glasses because then you know it, it's it's obvious to them that you would need them fitted for you. But um, with headphones, it doesn't seem to be the same case. Or, or with hearing, and, and there's a lot of issues around hearing. It's It's been kind of branded as an old person's thing. If you admit that you don't hear very well, then there's something very frightening about that for people. And this assumption that the only way out of it is uh, hearing aids is is, is just, um, it's very old thinking. You know, we can do really incredible stuff with, with these kinds of things.
0: Now, when it comes to music, you know, music... Is, is of course not objective in the way that in- intelligibility of like a conversation is a little more objective. Like mm-hmm. if someone has hearing loss, they can't understand what people are saying, mm-hmm. you can correct that. The perception of music, of course, is tied into your emotions and, and your feelings and uh, your, your, your past experiences. Couldn't someone make an argument that, well, what are you correcting to? Like if, if you're here, if you know, if you're sitting in a concert hall, you're gonna hear it a certain way, and then you put on headphones of a symphony you know why would you want it to be corrected when you enjoyed it you know live like you're now you're getting two different experiences like it's a you can't correct the real world so why would you correct recorded music does anyone ever ask that question
1: yes and it's it's a it's a valid and it's a great question and and i i agree with you what we're trying to do is basically imagine imagine a group of people sitting in a gallery looking at pictures but they all don't see very well and everything's a little bit blurry um, I think the amount of enjoyment they would get out of watching a blurry picture if you could come in and put a pair of glasses on, I think they would enjoy the experience more. That's what we're trying to do. but what we're trying to do is say, let's get the basics right. let's or, or at least as good as we can. We have technology that can assist you um, and bring your hearing as close to like twenty twenty hearing as we can. From then on, if you like more bass or more treble or less or whatever, you can do whatever you want but but let's try and get you to at least, at least um, as close as we can to kind of perfect hearing. And it's based on an objective measurement. So it's not me deciding whether or not you like bass or treble, whatever. It's looking at your audiogram and correcting for your specific audiogram. So there's an objective, um, there's an objective parameter here, which is the earprint or the audiogram, which kind of determines what we do. We've done a lot of tests with the audiology department of the University of the Pacific in San Francisco, so we work very closely with them. So there's a lot of of a lot of, um, science and thinking about the way that we do this. But in the end, yes, that music is a subjective experience. One thing I would say is there's um, really interesting research that shows that there is a very strong correlation between your ability to enjoy music or the emotional impact of music and the quality of your hearing. Um, which is very interesting. if you think about that, you know the better you hear, the more music moves you. And this is kind of what we're trying to do and, and we get those reactions from people after they do the earprint and after they listen to music, they get they can get very emotional because it's it's it, the emotional impact is really enhanced
0: right And of course, you could make a, a counter argument to the to the hypothetical edges throughout, which is that you know the recording engineer, the producer, the artist themselves, you know the, your favorite band, you'd want to hear it. Yourself the way they heard it when they were sitting you know in the control room at the studio uh, And deciding that they were like done with the album you'd want to hear the same thing they heard so that would be sort of the other way of
1: looking at it, right? Exactly And and I think part of my experience is being a sound designer and, and the amount of work that goes into any audio You know, you know this so it, it, It's a huge amount of work and and you're working with us, you know You're working with speakers and you're working with headphones and and the assumption that what goes out of that room is transformed one-to-one to the people outside listening to it is just a fallacy because it's not. They don't hear it that way. They they, they have different kind of hearing. It's unbalanced a lot of times. Um, the, as people grow older, they hear less and less frequencies, specifically high frequencies. So you're basically making this, this audio artifact, whether it's music or sound for a TV show or whatever, to an audience that can't, Physically perceive what you're doing because they don't have perfect hearing. You know, it's it's not, it's not a just a a, a a magical pair of speakers that you're once you let it out, everybody hears it the same. People hear it very differently. So, from my perspective, what I'm trying to do is to help you hear it as close as possible to what I try to do uh, by by helping you not by not by making more expensive or more fancy headphones, but by actually making headphones that actually take into consideration the the one thing that is kind of out of the equation now which is your specific hearing right
0: customized to you yeah um so t- talk a little bit about how you know how did you get excited about about audio in the first place did you start out um as a musician and then sort of get into audio or vice versa like what was what was it like as a
1: kid i started out as a musician um i started playing flute when i was very young um and i just drowned into it i just completely <laughs> lost interest in anything else and spent many, 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 many hours a day um, practicing. I just totally fell in love with music. I found I, I found a language which is, um, which I can speak. You know, music has this. If if you want to be really good at an instrument, it's a lot of hard work. So you need to work. You know, a lot of hours a day. But there's this this combination of, of very uh, intense physical work. And creativity, which I found I found very appealing. That's why we love to work with musicians. In the com- like eighty percent of the people who work at even are musicians, because it's 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 exactly that combination of people who are very have a lot of um, um, discipline, self discipline, because you have to have that if you're a professional musician. But with creativity, and that combination is, is really great. So I I played. We um, like. Were you
0: a classical musician playing flute presumably playing as flute? a kid?
1: Yeah, and then I went moved on to piano. Everything was classical music. We only heard. I I, I think I heard. The Velvet Underground's Banana album for for the first time when I was like seventeen, um, I was really steeped into classical and specifically modern twentieth century classical music. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of my thing, and um, German Expressionism when I was you know fifteen and all that kind of stuff like hardcore teenage things. So <laughs> some kids go to punk rock. I went to like I uh, was go to John Cage uh, and, uh, John and, Schoenberg. K- K- <laughs> and Schoenberg and Schoenberg and Alban and I was sure. like, yeah, that's that was that was my jam, and um, I really got into composing because I loved notation. Just this whole way of writing music and the way that music looks like really fascinated me. And I I just used to just you know, it was just nothing. I, I didn't, I couldn't hear what I was writing, but I loved the, you know, the the act of writing music.
0: It's sort of like the first version of coding or computer programming, exactly. right? Exactly. You can code this whole group of people to make, make sounds. Exactly.
1: So it was, it was like a, a revelation to me. And I, I started, um, private studies with, um, amazing Israeli composer called, um, Arik Shapira, who is, um, a great composer, very avant-garde, kind of crazy guy, and, and I studied with him, and then I went to the army. Um, in Israel, you, you know, there's three years you have to be in the army. It was a tank commander, so no music there. And um, when I got out, I went to and did my degree in music composition, the Tel Aviv Academy of Music.
0: Gotcha. And did you start working as a musician or uh, how did you sort of get into the the control room and the, the knobs and twitches side of the, the business?
1: So when I, w- when I was in the academy, I, I had a great teacher for um, like music and computers. This is early 90s. So we had like sound designers. So we had two track software, which was like, wow. And they started coming out with Finale, which was a way to write music on a computer. <clears throat> and I started helping him out, um, assisting him in, in these like classes. And I found it interesting. And after I finished, I was kind of at a at a, at a crossroads. I knew I didn't want to be a teacher, uh, which is what a lot of musicians kind of do after, especially composers kind of do after after school. And I opened a little. I, I bought a Mac Two CI, and I had a, a little on sam- Roland S S6- Seven Sixty sampler. This is like prehistoric stuff. And I started doing sound design for um, games as a as a just a way to make a living. And that kind of snowballed into a six-room facility doing about eighty percent of the entire commercial work in Tel Aviv. Uh, oh, wow! Yeah,
0: and when you say commercial work, you, you know, sound design for games involves composing music for games, but also what would, would be like TV commercials, jingles, yeah. um, books on tape, exactly, uh, records, albums, TV
1: commercials mostly, um, but a lot of documentaries, a lot of working specifically with film. So working with directors a lot, working with production companies, advertising agencies. So yeah, a lot of commercials like and scoring, scoring stuff. But but mostly sound design. So I would work with a musician. Um, I kind of kept my music side apart um, from this kind of work. Um, mm-hmm. And and most of the work was just you know sound anything from you know really taking you know doing foley, doing sound effects, ambiences. To building like a score and to building um, a complete soundtrack for, for something for sure.
0: So presumably you spent a lot of time with headphones on. Obviously, um, when did that? Do you, do you remember? Was there like is there like a moment that you can trace to like there was a spark where, where you said like I want to pursue this yeah. this concept.
1: Yeah, offer um, my co-founder gave me a call when I was um, still in Israel and said I'm going to Best Buy to buy a pair of headphones. What should I buy? Hmm. And I was like, you know, it doesn't really matter because they're basically all the same. It's a lot of overhyped, overpriced stuff what i don't understand why headphones aren't like glasses and that was the mm. beginning of the company <laughs> and it's, How about stu- that? And it's still the tagline yeah and we we spent a lot of time working with music mastering engineers and audiologists to kind of build this test and once we did that um and we tried it for ourselves we really felt that this was a a, a good enough idea to pursue and and really and really dive into
0: what was Ofer's background at the time
1: Ofer's a tech guy. Ofer's been in startups for like 25 years. His last company um, raised um, substantial funds and he moved with his family to San Francisco. This is like a decade ago. We were actually um, in the army together. He was my commanding officer in the army. So we've known each other for a long, long time. And um, yeah, so he's, he's in San Francisco. So
0: you started working on the idea. You mentioned the frequent uh, transcontinental and transatlantic flights. Yeah. Uh, what was the first steps like when you actually sort of said, okay, we're gonna sit down and we're gonna set down routes somewhere. Like how was that conversation?
1: So when we started, we really gathered a, a, a pretty incredible team of people around us. So people who do um, anyone um, music mastering, um, firmware guys, software guys. Um, some of them were based in Israel, some were based in San Francisco. Um, we started the company as an American company, so it was never an Israeli company. And, um, and it just pretty pretty quickly became clear that our focus is on the North American market. And most of our investors are, are also here, and it just it just made sense for us to, um, to to really focus on the U.S. and and for me, kind of New York or Brooklyn was a was a clear, you know, there there was I wasn't going to move to San Francisco. Did you have a relationship with Brooklyn already? I had a relationship with Brooklyn. I have a, as I said, my wife, my my, my wife's family is from New York, um, not from Brooklyn, but from Yonkers. But um, we've been to New York many, 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 many times, and it was a lifelong dream of mine to move here and um and brooklyn just felt like home immediately um and it's still you know it's still it it amazes me how quickly we we i came here with my my three kids and um how quickly we we just felt at home and 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 we're embraced by by the um you know neighborhood we're in so it's 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 been incredible and what neighbor where did you start the actual business so we're in park slope um,
0: our office is on Dean Street. That's not known as a commercial or manufacturing hotbed, is no, it? No,
1: no. We, we actually manufacture in China, but there's something very unique about the way that we manufacture because we don't work with an ODM. Usually when people say we manufacture in China, it means that you're working with, an, with a local Chinese factory. And what, I've been, what does ODM stand for? I don't remember the acronym, but it's a, it's a company that, that actually, you know, they have like lines of production. And you come with a design, and they will produce it for you. So they
0: come up with some of the the intermediate steps too. You just start with the design. They just you, they take over early, is what you're saying.
1: The, no, the, you actually come with a with a finished product design. Oh, I see. And they will they will you know buy the parts for you, and they will assemble it, and I they see. will and uh, they will do the quality control and all that kind of stuff. So, so it's they're, they're basically the factory that manufactures mm-hmm. uh, that manufactures your design. Um, they don't usually have a lot to say in terms of design, but they are the, you know, they, they take over the the manufacturing process. Mm -hmm. We actually, because we do lean design, lean manufacturing, which means that we don't do a a lot of, um, we don't do, you know, like 50,000 headphones at a time. We do 5,000 headphones at a time. So we don't have a lot of inventory to manage and, and we can actually, you know, um, work with the amount of orders that we have. So we actually manufacture ourselves. So we have one of our workers, Kevin, is a Chinese American, and he's on uh, between San Francisco and Shenzhen all the time. And we have our own dedicated space there, and we actually manufacture everything ourselves in, in the United States and in, in China. In China, in in oh Shenzhen. interesting! So yeah. you
0: actually have like a like a partner relationship, I yes, guess You could say yes. Is that unusual?
1: Yes. Yeah, usually, um, companies tend to try. You know, they go they go shopping in Shenzhen. They meet like fifteen different um, ODMs. Um, they show you the kind of stuff that we that they do. It's I have been to the you know factories that manufacture Beats and Bose and Sennheiser and all those. Um, it's interesting to see some of them are. are it's just it's cities like ten thousand people working in a factory, and you have like the line for Beats and here's the line for Bose and here and they're all one next to one next to each other. Um, I didn't feel that that was the right thing for even um, the MOQ so the minimum orders that you need to do are in the tens of thousands. It, for a small startup like us, it can be prohibitively expensive and complicated to, to do. So we actually build this system um, where we can manufacture in small quantities and only when we need them. Uh, so you know we buy everything smaller, everything costs us less, and it's been it's enabled us over the past two years to really be to be really be a small startup in the hardware space, which is usually very difficult and very um, you know cash intensive. But to be able to 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 handle it and be successful at it.
0: When you guys decided to sort of start, did you have a like a price point and a customer in mind? Like, I know you guys have more than one model. Like, was there was there a flagship one that you started with? Like, how, how did how did you sort of attack the market? There's a lot of different uses for headphones. A lot of different kinds of headphones.
1: Yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about it, thinking about it, talking to people about it. Um, I think one of the things that was very clear to me in the beginning that <clears throat> was that I didn't want to do a Kickstarter. Um, I know that it's a very common and legitimate uh, route. But it, it just didn't appeal to me at all. I wanted to go into market. Um, I think Kickstarters usually, you know, kind of cater to a very specific kind of audience of early adapters um it's very expensive to do a kickstarter people think that you just put your product on write some copy but it's it's hundreds of thousands of dollars to do a successful kickstarter but you have to hire pr and marketing you have to hire pr you have to hire marketing you have to do a great movie you have to Mm -hmm. do usually what they tell you is that you know i met with indiegogo and kickstarter and, and what they tell you is that you need to be able to hit your target um let's say you you know you want to raise a hundred thousand dollars you need to be able to hit your target within 24 to 48 hours if you're not going to do that in that time span in that time frame you're never going to get that money to do that you need to spend months before building your kind of email support and doing a lot of pr work and during it's it's a lot of work so that when the campaign goes live it's not that magically uh, people invest in it but it's you've been around for a long time and you're investing all that money and i was i was like Let's take that money and invest in going to market.
0: It seems kind of tangential, right? I mean, option B would be like, here, check these headphones out that I made and exactly. see if you like them. I mean, that's another way to sell it, right?
1: Yeah, and and I think part of it is that Ofer and I have been have been you know I've been running my own business for a long time. Ofer's been in st- in startups for a long time. We really wanted to see very quickly if there's a market for what we do. Um, you know, a lot of times entrepreneurs and you know I'm guilty of it too. You think you have this amazing world changing idea. But then the market kind of goes back and tells you, "Well, you know, it's cool, but we're not that interested." And I wanted to see if there, if if we've hit a nerve, if there's really, if if, if the market is really interested in what we're doing. And I didn't feel that Kickstarter and Indiegogo is the way to go because, again, it's a it's for a very specific kind of market. For a very, only a very specific kind of person actually does that. It's also you're testing. You're you're basically testing
0: the idea of the idea. Exactly. You're not, you're not. I mean people put the money behind their interest which is which is different than like surveys and focus groups and stuff like that so there's something to it but but you're sort of testing the sizzle not the steak i guess right when you you do it that way
1: exactly it's like i i I try to give them an example of that is i have a great idea to write a song about the fact that you know yesterday we really got along very well but then you left and i'm kind of sad about it and actually writing yesterday the song yesterday, the Beatles. Mm-hmm. So I can tell you that I have a great idea for a song, but actually <laughs> writing yesterday, right, is a and and recording it and doing it is and and I always feel you know and, and that's a little quibble I have with 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 um, journalists sometimes is that when it even came out they w- they would they would compare us to Kickstarters and I was like you're comparing a real life product that you can buy on the market now so we've gone through the whole thing. To somebody's idea, and the difference between an idea and an actual product is, is, is a galaxy. Yeah,
0: not, I mean, not to take it to the left here, but I mean, look at what happened with Theranos recently, which was a classic. Ten years of 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 selling an idea, of selling an idea, without idea. ever having an idea of how to make it work.
1: And after four years of doing this, I can I can tell you from my own experience that it is it is it's it's that is the that is the real challenge. It's taking it from an idea and making it into a viable working product. And we started out. We said, "Let's do a POC. Let's do a proof of concept." Uh, we did our earphones, which is um, which are you know in ears with uh, with a controller that you could do the um, the earprint, and we put it out for ninety nine dollars on our website, and and we hired a PR agency. We didn't have money to do marketing, so we did a little bit of Facebook marketing, but we mostly work with PR and then there comes a day which was exactly 2 years ago the 28th of June 2016 where everything goes live and you're just sitting there and you're going oh my god <laughs> i just hope that somebody will buy this thing and it will go and we'll get good reviews and 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 this whole thing will take off and and i was just i just remember myself sitting in my in our office and then suddenly it starts going and the PR comes out and we sold out within 48 hours, the entire first batch of a thousand that we had did another batch of a thousand sold that out in another 48 hours. And then we were kind of, okay, this is interesting. So somebody's interested in what we're doing. People are actually willing to take out their credit cards and buy it from us. Um, and then the, Proof of concept, because even as software, even as a software and technology company, what we do can be embedded in everything. Mm-hmm. I just on the way here, I just read about the whole Netflix thing with the closed captioning and subtitles. Even can be embedded within and should be, by the way, embedded within Netflix just to help people understand dialogue better. And 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 um, that it w- that was kind of part of what we were looking at, but also part of it was the hardware setup. And and we just kind of figured out that the hardware. Um, Option is a viable op- option for us, and we could actually be a startup that is that's that is not just um, you know um, getting investor cash and kind of um, investing it in R and D, but we can actually create a, a revenue stream out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say that it's it's um, I really love doing that. You know, um, building a brand, telling a story um, is is one of the great you know um, uh, one of the most interesting facets of this for me.
0: Now, one thing I've noticed, you know, as an entrepreneur myself, is uh, that there's an interesting difference between service businesses and sort of like product-based businesses. You know, my, my experience, and, and I've seen friends, and you know, and so on. Um, you know, there, there's the line between like freelancing or even like working for somebody else or taking contract work and then running a company that does similar kinds of work is blurry. You know, at some point, at some point, you hire someone to help you. Are you are you are you still a freelancer? Maybe you put your name on the door, maybe you put a company's name, you get a logo. Mm-hmm. The the point being that that business model has like sort of a, a, a transition period from like odd jobs up to I don't know, like Razorfish or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, or McKinsey and company, mm-hmm. you know, those are kind of on a linear scale. Products are, are, are different. Like there's a lot of things that you just can't do yourself. Like you sort of have to have a, a whole, you know, realignment of the way you're thinking it. That's what I've seen. You know, you ran a successful service based business or mm-hmm. production studio for mm-hmm. years. Did you sort of hit the wall? Or did you have any? Did you have any? You know, any days where you kind of, where kind of had to come to terms with those differences?
1: Yeah. Well, being in a service, and it's true, you know, I, I I'm a professional sound designer, but, but but most of my work was working with other people and giving service to. And in the end, you're you're servicing someone else other than yourself. Whether it's an ad, and you're servicing the client or the production company or the or the ad agency. Or working with you know working with clients it was a um, it was a, a super interesting experience but I kind of you know after doing it for 20 years I kind of felt that I wanted to, to try something else and what we're doing now with even and the product and, and that kind of stuff is, is 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 very different because we're actually trying to there is no one else that you're trying to please it's you and the consumer in the end, but it's, it's you. And, and I find Which you often don't meet the consumer. You never see them. So it's, this, that's very different, right? So we, yeah. So we did that for two years online and actually my, um, the best way for me to meet consumers was through our support page. So if you write an email to support at geteven.co I will personally answer you if you give us a call, I will take the call and talk to you because that was my only way of, of being in touch with consumers and actually having a conversation with people who are buying our products. We opened the pop-up store um, now in Soho because we wanted that direct connection to people. We wanted people to come in, try it for themselves, experience what we do for themselves. And, and, and I think it, it's the, the really gratifying experience for me is that one out of two people who come in the store and try them actually buy them, which is which is amazing to me. And people get it very quickly. Um, what
0: kind of reaction do people have when they sort of they go through the little test and they put it on? Like how do they how do they feel?
1: We call it the aha moment. They have this. They 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 do the hearing test. One of the things that was really um, took a lot of work was making hearing tests more um, easier for people to do. We found out very early on that people don't like to do them there's something eerie about it it's quiet you don't know if you press the button you didn't did you hear it you didn't hear it everything it's it's kind of a weird experience disconcerting. yeah
0: i mean i just did it 20 minutes ago it is a little disconcerting it's a
1: little bit disconcerting and when we started it took about five and a half minutes to do um and people won't won't give you five and a half minutes to do this so we managed with a lot of work to 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 bring it down to about 90 seconds uh, which is what you did, and Sarah, who walks you through it, there's a lot of thought behind that, specifically because um, we wanted to give you positive affirmation. That's why she says, great job, after every time you press the button. Now, sometimes it sounds like she's she's over, over nice, but she's actually helping you along. That's why she'll say, only three more to go, only two more to go um so we're actually trying to help you go through the process so one of the things i'm i'm happy about is that people do the process pretty easily uh, it always amazes me how when they turn it on the headphones talk to them which is an experience we have never had with any other headphones it seems to people very very natural so they're like oh yeah great. it's got a science fiction
0: feel to kind it. of science yeah. fiction
1: feel to it and then they go through it and then when we put on some music and they click the even button usually it's an aha moment they have this kind of their eyes light up they smile um, they turn it on and off because they want to see what's going on. Um, <clears throat> a lot of times people will turn down um, ask if the volume got if it got louder, which it doesn't. It's just you perceive sound differently with them. And what happens is people turn down the volume by about 30 40 percent because they hear better at lower volume, which is also great. and um, it's very gratifying. We have a lot of people um, kind of say, you know you gave me my music back. And we got that so many times that we actually trademarked it. So one of our taglines is "Get your music back," because you know people, as as your hearing kind of deteriorates as you age, then people kind of lose track of music and they kind of listen less to music because it's less p- pleasurable. And and once they do the earprint and they get the they get the headphones and they go through the, what, what we do and they get this amazing experience out of music again, um, they tend to be very happy about it, very grateful. And for me, that's you know it's um it's a good reason to wake up in the morning and do this and 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 try and get you know people aware about about what the earprint does and and how we can improve um you know the audio experience
0: have you guys considered stuff beyond headphones you mentioned you mentioned Netflix or you know other maybe like streaming services uh obviously like movie or entertainment experiences there's also like industrial stuff like you know helicopter pilots headphones and things like that like what 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 kind of do you have expansion in mind into yeah. different into different places?
1: Absolutely. So the the idea behind even is even as a is a technology and software company. What we do can be embedded and should be embedded in any headphone. I don't see at the end of the day Beats and Bose and Sennheiser and 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 all these companies as competitors. I see them as licensees. Um, we can embed even within the earprint within Netflix, um, Amazon, anything you know, Spotify. Uh, Pandora. It should be the vision for even is that the even earprint will be embedded in, you know, almost any audio device in the next five years. The question I always ask people when they when we discuss this is, it's not, it's not, you know, why should you have the even earprint? It's why don't you have it? It's a, it's a, it's a great scientifically proven way to help people hear better and get more out of sound. So, you know, it's it's just a it's just a a logical step forward. It's as a small startup really um challenging what is conceived to be um, a very, you know, uh you, you know, you've you've never heard anything like this and and people don't don't know that they hear differently than other people. It's challenging to tell that story. Um but we're very committed to it and we're seeing good success with it. Well, Danny, thank you so much for coming
0: in. Thank you. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to From Day One, how Brooklyn entrepreneurs got their start. This series is made possible by The Bridge, a news site dedicated to reporting on business in Brooklyn. With help from Complex Ventures, a Brooklyn-based digital agency working with more-than-profit companies and organizations. For more from The Bridge, to learn more about today's guest, or to listen to more episodes of From Day One, visit us at thebridgebk.com. That's T H E b-r-i-d-g-e-b-k.com. From Day One is produced by Cora Feeder, Steve Kep, and myself, Nick Bailey. Audio editing and post-production by Steph Derwin. Our theme music was performed by Jody Rockwell and the Ambulamps, and our founding sponsor was the Made in New York Media Center. Thanks for listening.